On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discuss Merlion's Season's End and Holidays in Eden. Welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock groups of all time, album by album. On this episode, we discuss the first two albums of the Marillion Hogarth era, namely Season's End and Holidays in Eden. This is uh, the second episode in our Marillion portion of the uh, podcast, and we'll be dealing with the beginning of the Stephen Hogarth era. era. And um, so that gives us Season's End, Holidays in Eden, Brave, and Afraid of Sunlight to, uh, to deal with. So from a just from a, a technical point of view, you know, running down. Again, the beauty of, of Marillion is from this point on, we have absolutely zero personnel changes, which is almost unheard of. Mm -hmm. So the, the the band lineup, of course, is going to be Steve Hogarth on vocals, Rothery on guitar, um, Pete on bass, Mark Kelly on keyboards, and Ian Mosley on drums. Season's End... Um, was released in 1989, produced by Marillion and Nick Davis. Holidays in Eden was in 1991, produced by Christopher Neal. And uh, both of those were released on EMI. Um, Brave was released in 1994, possibly the best year for albums ever. Um, produced by Dave Megan, who has an interesting history with the band, obviously, which we'll get into as we continue down this road. Also released by EMI. And then I believe the last EMI album is Afraid of Sunlight, which was released in 1995, which was produced by Dave Megan and Marillion, which, uh, you know, obviously there we go. So starting out, if we, you know, just read the, the standard accepted blurb for Season's End. And one of the things I'll note that I, I, I had always missed, the name for Season's End is without the apostrophe, implying the end of seasons, plural, as opposed to the end of yeah. a particular season. And um, yeah, that was something I'd always kind of overlooked. And in fact, when I went back and looked at the original emails, we did it back then too. We had the apostrophe on everything. Um, uh -huh. But the, the intro paragraph on the Wikipedia page for Season's End says, Season's End is the fifth studio album by British rock band Marillion released in 1989. The album was the first to feature current lead singer Steve Hogarth following the departure of former vocalist Fish in late 1988. It reached number seven on the UK albums chart. And that's all they have to say. Now, you know, I, I, I'm always interested when there's a significant personnel change in a band. Um, 
because the the first album is always this this sort of amalgam, if you will, of of the old and the new, and in a lot of ways, you know, there's you know, depending on how it works, and certainly here, you know, as we were, uh, you know, as as you read or whatnot, a lot of the music had already been written by the time Fish left, and we talked about that in the last episode. Um, you know, where you know there was there was the music to Berlin with with the lyrics to um, oh I forget what the name of the Fish song is now, but so now you've got all that music and you put Steve Hogarth on top of it, and obviously it changes everything. And in a lot of ways, you know, so musically it's very closely related to to Clutching at Straws, but it's it's a completely different beast. And, you know, I guess they had had John Helmer start to write some lyrics before Hogarth even arrived. So there are four of the songs on the album that have lyrics by Helmer. And the, the more research, you, you know, I did, you know, apparently Hogarth would, would alter those in some cases. But I guess, you know, Helmer still gets um, the, the lyric writing credit on that. So it, it's just, it's... For me, Season's End is a fascinating album, and, you know, again, it's one of those those funny stories, and I don't know if, Paul, you want to tell it or if you want me to tell it about when I bought Season's End. Um, you know, this was... It was probably, what, 1990, I guess? Maybe it was the summer of 89, I don't exactly know. But we had... We had Oh, it must have been 1990 because, you know, we I had gotten into Marillion then my sophomore year. So it would have been yeah. the summer after that. So not long yeah. after Hogarth had joined and, you know, as was the case back in the day before the Internet, you didn't know everything. You know, we were slowly amassing the, the catalog of Marillion that existed. And so Paul was working at the mall and I had, you know, I was there to... I don't know, pick him up, hang out. I don't know what the hell I was doing. And I had time to kill, so I went to the uh, to the record store and I bought Season's End. And Paul and I, we hatched this scheme. We went back to my place um, and bought a pizza. And we were going to hang out and eat a pizza and listen to Marillion. And I was... I must have bought two things that day. That may have been the day I bought script. I may have bought script in season's end. I'm not exactly sure because I was, I remember I was, I was over at my stereo putting something in and Paul's looking at season's end and I hear him go, um, Joe, who's Steve Hogarth? <laughs> I, I, said, oh, I remember this story. That's good. I, I That's said, wrong. I have no idea why. And Paul said, well, because he sings on this album. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> All right, well, this will be different. <laughs> so we didn't even know at that point that, that Fish had left, and that was uh, that was how we figured it out. And, uh, you know, so you, you, you put in Season's End not knowing what you're going to get, and, um, you know, King of Sunset Town comes in, and it's like, okay, you know, that's... Okay, I get it, whatever, you know. And then, you know, Easter comes in, which I, I'm 99.8% certain that Easter did not have the appropriate impact on me 
that first time and certainly not the impact that it has on me to to this day and um yeah it's you know it was just it was something different yeah you know joe i, I agree with you about that however um I, I i don't i'm glad you told that story because i remember the pizza i remember <laughs> i remember sitting in your room and this the steve hogarth conversation I don't remember how I got there and how I, you know, I just don't remember anything, but I remember eating that pizza, listening to the five, four part in Easter at the end, just being like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. At least, you know, the music is still rocking, you know? Um, and then I don't think, I think it was probably another year and a half before I even really truly got into and appreciated um, anything else in um, on season's end? Yeah, because I mean, it just took that long. Well, it, it was it was it was such a you know in a lot of ways it was such a departure from what we were used to um, with Marillion, and obviously one you know one of the greatest differences between Fish and Hogarth is the way that they interpret. The emotion of the music, if you will, um, and you know, it, it just—it was vastly different, and I, I think it—it it took a while to sort of, you know, digest that, if you will. And um, you know, you know, I had made the comment that you know, by clutching at straws, you know, fish had had really kind of a you know, this, this bleak internal view of, of, you know, the emotional aspect, the pain and the suffering and woe is me and, and everything else. And what was that? Uh, that was some sort of, um, text message that's coming through on my phone. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was Tom trying to get us. Um, and, and it was, and, and with Hogarth, it's almost like, you know, someone picks up your your eyes and forces you to look around at other things. I mean, that's that's just the way I kind yeah. of, you know, feel about it now. I have no idea how I felt about it then, but... Yeah, you know, we, we talked about how our discovery of Marillion and how it evolved. And, you know, at this point, when, when I first heard Season's End at Your House with the Pizza Joe, um, it was... I, I was still, I was still trying to figure out, you know, clutching at straws and and beginning to listen to um, the Gaza Ladra, right? Like I, I was still just trying to figure all of that stuff out, and and the Hogarth Marillion or Hogmar, as we were referring to it in our emails, um, it was just a little too much, I think, for for my musical brain to comprehend at the time, and. Um, and it was it's 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 kind of funny that it wasn't until Holidays in Eden came out, I think my head was more prepared to fully embrace the the different Marillion and really getting into Holidays in Eden after it came out. Then I started going back and listening to Seasons End, and then started really appreciating it for um for what it was, and of course seeing them at the Chestnut Cabaret in that absolutely packed house. And watching them do so many tracks from Seasons End and Holidays in Eden really just kind of solidified 
um, not just the music and but like Hogarth's position in the band as you know the man. You know, and that's funny because I had almost the exact opposite reaction at this period, where I think I was I was much more in tune with Seasons End. And as the emails will show, I was not so much on board with Holidays in Eden um, back in the day. Yeah. So really, what, what, uh, well, we're still on Seasons End, but but in a, in a word, what turned you off about Holidays? I'm, I'm in Eden? thinking it was it was this, Ken. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. I think that has something to do with it. All right. Buddy makes his first appearance in the podcast. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Um, so is Seasons End a very neutral album deliberately? I mean, other than the blatant, folky, sing-songy of Easter and, uh, you know, some of the... I mean, did they did they tone it down and just kind of keep it in a safe place i don't know how safe a lot of it is i mean there there are obviously some areas that are very safe but you know i i really i i attribute it to the fact that the a lot of the music was written for fish and when hogarth came in things didn't line up exactly right and you know, I'm sure there was, you know, there was, there was sort of a feeling out between the, you know, the two sides, if you will, you know, how is this new singer going to work? He's obviously very different, um, you know, and, and there was the, I would have to say there's the John Helmer aspect of it as well. So you, you've got this third person in the mix and, you know, it, it just takes some time to gel. I, you know, I would, I would, and I will make the argument that current Marillion lineup really didn't feel 100% comfortable with themselves until Afraid of Sunlight. I think up until then, there was there was a lot of sort of discovery going on, much in the same way, you know, like we were talking about in the last episode, with, with the first four albums, you know, in, in that case, it was, you know, young musicians figuring out how to do what they wanted to do. Now these guys are older, but it's still a new entity, if you will. Um, you know, and I'm sure there was there was a lot of, you know, uh, of the the musician parts trying. You know, they're like, "Hey, we know who we are," but they had to kind of figure out who they needed to be with Steve. And and yeah, another part about that. Hang on a second, Paul. Is you know, I, I remember certainly with Holidays in Eden, there always seemed to be a little bit of tension with the fact that Hogarth wanted to be a keyboardist in addition to a singer, and it wasn't really obvious where he fit in in that role. Yeah. You were going to say Yeah, that? I mean, I, 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 I'm just reacting to what you're saying. I, I feel like you're right. The, the music, you know, we talked, you know, Ken, you talked last time about the arc of of the music and, and, and the way Stephen Rothery evolved over those first four albums and, and the way that um, Ian Mosley and Mark Kelly, I'm sorry, um, Pete Trovavis just started to really gel 
as we get into, you know, um, misplaced childhood and really into um, clutching at straws. And, you know, I think when you when you kind of put that lens on season's end, I mean, it is I mean, they have they have it going on. Right. It is just to me, every every note, every everything that's happening is in the perfect spots. The guitar is magical. The bass and the drums are right on. And, um, you know, I think Mark Kelly starts to. And I don't know how much of this is a Steve Hogarth influence, but the keyboards start to become a little bit more dreamy and spacey and less more um, uh, the typical or organ type of keyboard sounds that, that, you know, we're used to in the, in the late eighties in the, in the progressive rock world. Right. And, um, and, and so this is all like, it, it is just happening and they are locked in and here comes this guy who, when you really think about it, has no business being in Marillion or any other progressive band at, at that time. Because he, I mean, what, he, what was he doing before this? I mean, I think he's listed as being in, I can't even remember what, what, uh, what, we're, crediting, what we're crediting. Um, he was in the band how we The live. Europeans. Yes, and How We Live, right? So he was more of... Um, almost like a new wave almost. So it seems like he's coming in from a completely different area. So, you know, he, I think one of the, the beautiful things about season end and I'm, and I could just be guessing is that, you know, you've got this band that is so in tune with each other as far as what they're doing. And you have somebody coming in and, you know, sort of changing, you know, to your point, Joe, the subject matter of what we're talking about. It's, it's, there's, there seems to be less of an internal strife and internal conflict and addiction and, and troubles. And he's singing about, uh, you know, problems in Ireland and Berlin and climate change and all this stuff. Like there's more of an outward, outward approach to things. And for me, it really, really works really well. I, I, I love it. And when, when we get into holidays in Eden, to me, that's where it's, it's this, okay, whose band is this anyway? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> and, 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 you know, like season's end, you know, the other thing that I just, I have to say is that throughout the last couple of Merlin albums prior to season end, Nick Davis was kind of working through some things as far as engineering and mixing. And he produced season's end. And not too long after that, you know, he did a lot of work with XTC and I think he did work with Mike and the Mechanics, but he also produced And We Danced by Genesis, which I think in a, in a way is very similar to Season's End, where you have this, this incredible band that's capable of doing anything, and they have masterfully crafted songs uh, one after the other. And I kind of feel like that's how Season's End is, what, end is as well. Um, and I think sonically, it's one of the best sounding albums that they've ever done. I don't think we hear something produced as well until Marbles. That, that's a really, really good point, you know, especially as, you know, the production quality is going to become more and more of an issue as we as we proceed through the Marillion catalog. You know, we, we discussed previously the issues, the production issues um, with 
with the first two script and Fugazi, um, you know, and that may just be a budgetary thing, but, but I, I would certainly agree in terms of, you know, sort of capturing and presenting the Marillion sound of the eighties. This probably did, you know, the, you know, Nick did the best job of anyone doing that. And there's no need for, for volume manipulation at this point. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Wait, you're saying we can't dance is a sonic pleasure by Nick Davis. You're saying that this is a, a, a masterful achievement because I may have to actually listen to it for the first time. Is that, is that what that record is called? Joe, we can't dance the last yeah, one we can't with, dance. Uh, with Phil. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah, goodness, Ken. You've probably heard many songs from from that, Ken. But it's um, you know, it obviously is littered with uh the the you know whatever the the slice of the slice of whatever hits of the day, right? Mm -hmm. Um. Mm -hmm. So you have to skip a few tracks there if it it may uh, interrupt your musical sensibilities, but um. But there are some fantastic tunes in there. Fantastic. So I, I, I want to I move on. But before we do that, I do want to sort of point out the four songs that are, are credited with Helmer lyrics and just investigate if there's anything there. King of Sunset Town, The Uninvited Guest, Berlin, and Hooks in You, which leaves for Hogar's con contribution, Easter, Season's End, Holloway Girl, after me in the space when you mm. when you split up the album sort of along those lines it's you know i find it interesting as i was researching this there's a lot that is made about the song berlin um in that i want to say the berlin wall actually came down like six or eight weeks after this album was released which is you know mm. an interesting yeah. sort of thing but you know that everyone Every time I read anything about this album and they mentioned Berlin, it's like, oh, you know, and they did the song Berlin because that's where the band recorded Misplaced Childhood and it was really important. Well, I mean, Hogarth wasn't wasn't there at the time, so I don't know, you know, how important that really was. And again, the song Berlin actually started out um, or, or, you know, started out with completely different lyrics by Fish that actually dealt with you know, a guy listening to domestic abuse in the apartment next door, you know, you know, so mm. uh, yeah, I, I don't know, but you know, any thoughts on, on, you know, the, the Helmer aspect mm. at this point, or is it a red herring? Well, the Helmer contribution is, uh, uh, a Brit pop quirk in my estimation, um, where an uninvited guest in particular, it's like, it's like that one song that stands out that's really quirky, that goes over well in Britain and not many other places. And, uh, you know, what, what's the Genesis song? I, uh, I know what I like in my wardrobe or something like oh, yeah. that. You know what I mean? It's like, it, 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 I don't know. It's just that sense of, of humor in the lyrics that that you know can go either way. But for me, it kind of tilts to the corny side. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Those... You're you're sort of you're sort of acting like a thirteen stone foot footer uh, there. <laughs> yeah. Oh what? All right. I I think you... I asked. 
Pete Trevavis, uh what that meant, and he looked at me like I had seven heads. He's like, you don't know? <laughs> he said, it's basically like someone that doesn't belong, and he's in, you're in the way, and move away. Um, <laughs> so interestingly, while you're talking about uninvited guests, there, there is some some things that happen. Like Stephen Rothery is such such a magical guitar player, and you can the, you know one of the best things about him is you can almost sing the songs of Marillion just by singing the guitar lines. And um, but when uninvited guest comes around, it's the first time that singing the guitar line includes which is so strange um, overall. Uh, and I'm glad that, that he sort of moved away from that after this album because, like, Hooks and You and Uninvited Guest, it, you know, it, it's, you know, sort of tapping into some of that, um, you know, metal of the day or the, you know, pop guitar, whatever of the day. And which, which I'm glad it kind of got out of the system. Because we've seen them perform Hooks and You, and it actually translates fairly well live, which is weird. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I don't know if we should you know, stay here or come back to it. But, you know, for me on this album, Easter and the space just take me places. I can remember it, it, it must've been, you know, 92, 93 when I was, when I was living at Algonquin, Paul. And I remember one specific instance where we were sitting in, in my room there and just listening to Easter it, ear-shattering volume and just like you know after it was done we're just like oh that was cool <laughs> yeah and then yeah know. oh yeah mucho i'm sorry it. king of sunset town has always been one i think after i saw them live for the um holidays in eden tour and i remember the performance of king of sunset town just really striking me as you know, I, I don't think I had ever really considered the oh how Mucho. hey Mucho's joining us how how what an incredible vocal performance that was and um Tom we can't and, and see I, and I think, but... you know, for me King of Sunset Town and Easter is is as good as any opening two songs of any Marillion album. Um, there he is, Mucho. All right, so we've What's got going on, uh, guys. We, Hold on we, we've got Tom on. joining so, us. Very nice. Excellent timing. So Tom. I, I like the Helmer. I like the Helmer. I like the fact that there can be somebody pumping in lyrics when, uh, when they need them. Um, I think his most important contribution to the band uh, was the song "Made Again." Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> we will certainly yeah. get to that. All right, so. Mm. Tom, we're, we're moving into Holidays in Eden. and um, Beautiful. You remember that, that one, Tom? I do. So, so <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, the Wikipedia blurb on this one, Holidays in Eden is the sixth studio album by the British neo-progressive rock band Marillion, released in 1991. Recorded at Hook End Manor in Oxfordshire and Westside Studio in London, it was the band's second album with vocalist Steve Hogarth and the first completely written without previous lead singer Fish. Partly due to producer Christopher Neal, many of the songs feature a mainstream pop rock sound as opposed <laughs> to progressive rock of previous works, and Hogarth has described Holidays in Eden as, quote, Marillion's popist album ever, end quote. It also reached number seven in the UK albums chart. 
So, Paul, the reason why I was actually doing some research into what is progressive rock was for this very section here, based on some comments that Tom had made in the last episode. I figured it would be germane to the conversation to, um, you know, figure out whether or not Holidays in Eden is, in fact, a progressive album. Now, another interesting aspect of this, ah. um, though there's, there's, there's a lot about this album that's very, very interesting. Um, one is the vast difference in, the, play, in the, the song order between the U.S. and the U.K. versions. Yeah. Part, part of the problem I had was, you know, my first exposure to this was, I think, Paul, through your copy, and you had the, the U.K. version. I did. Which yeah. opened with Splintering Heart and went on from there. Yes. And then, but the... Oh, US, that's all I've ever known. That's how it should be. Well, exactly. But the U.S. Exactly. version... The U.S. version is all jacked up. And then... How um, did the U.S. version open up, Joe? You already played it, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to get... I can't get enough of it. <laughs> so another interesting thing there were there were three singles released from this cover my eyes holidays in eden and and dry land what's interesting about that is there are two songs on this album that come from hogar's previous reincarnation in how we live and those would be dry land which was a straight up how we live song and Cover My Eyes, which apparently was a rewrite of the How We Live song, Simon's Car, whatever the hell that means. But so two of the, of the three singles on this album actually came from Hogarth's previous band. And Paul, I think that goes into your point about whose band is this anyway at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a party foul. Um, if you're bringing in music from other bands, I think it's your duty to do it in the first the first record. By now, you should be able to, uh, you know, do it. But I will say, um, even though I I find very few of these songs, like I would, I don't know that I would even find them applicable to any uh, Marillion show. Like I would, I I I don't, I would never go to Marillion wanting to hear anything off. Um, this this record except maybe for the exception of the, the final three songs oh. that sweep um but but you know i can't help but still really like this record i can't help but like it and dry land was one of my favorites from the beginning it just it, it is a showcase of hogarth's vocal ability and it is beautiful so um i'm really torn on this one really torn you know, it's 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 fascinating. I agree with you. I think you know, in this in this these two albums, you know, Hogarth really, if nothing else, shows that he can be a fantastic singer, but he's never been as good as vocally as he was on these albums. Even though a lot of the music, maybe later on, is better in a lot of ways, which. Mm. You know, I find very frustrating. Um, there are a lot of things about Steve. While I, I, I have grown to really adore Steve, there are some things about him that I still find very, very frustrating. And that's, you know, that's one of them. But 
you know. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I, 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 I beg to differ that he hasn't. Maybe on album he hasn't achieved some of that. But when we saw Marillion at the Keswick, I mean, H just had this, this pristine voice. It was so impressive. Now, and, and I will say that Hogarth's voice, when we saw him, was that November? That was as good as I've heard him in a long time. And, yeah. you know, Paul, when we get to Brave, you and I were joking sort of offline that we'd been listening to the live versions of that. And nothing will ever, ever distort the memory in my mind of that Montreal show, which was just spectacular. Yeah. But listening to the yeah. live version from, from Holland, Hogarth has some rough rough moments <laughs> in that recording yeah you know I, I i always like the the marillion weekends are fun because i remember when we went you know they spent so much time with with people that you know he goes and sings a full show the first night and then spends the whole next day talking with all the fans and then goes up and does another show i remember first, that's the first thing i noted noticed when i when i was listening to the live dvd watching it was like um, you know, for his first line, and I'm thinking, man, he sounds really tired already, and he hasn't even started. The well, night. I remember when, when um, we went, and Tom was like, "Don't talk to me. I don't want you to talk to me. Save your voice." Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember <laughs> that, Tom? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> roughly, yes. <laughs> that, that was the day we actually woke up, Tom, and and went out, and we didn't sleep till dinner time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Um, well, I mean, the one day we waited and got off the line to get our, uh, you know, albums autographed. Yeah. And was that what you were talking about, Joe? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Because I, I don't know anything that happened the next day because, I yeah, we got, <laughs> I actually got up at dinner time. I got up and it was night. It was actually, so I have no <laughs> idea what <laughs> I mean, so, it was literally dark outside when we got up. Yeah, so. Joe, Joe, Joe spent the afternoon pretending that we had house guests, housemates, <laughs> and, uh, inventing stories about them. Right, right. Oh, that was a <laughs> that was a complete freaking hoot. You guys were a mess. Ken, we I, I, I'm sure you remember hearing about this. So we we were in a flat. We were on the upper floor. These other guys were on the bottom, and Tom and the I Germans. never saw this. Story. I heard, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I tell the story. Yeah, yeah. So the Germans are supposed. Yeah. <laughs> you don't see them. Joe sees them, and and you know it could have been an illusion. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody paid for the other half of the room, so might as well be German ghosts. The, yeah. Uh... I, I... <laughs> All right. Whoa, 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 I didn't get to talk about this album. This album is yeah. an amazing so so can i can i do my little um my my, my, yes. my, my little holidays in okay so wh while you guys were into merillion.com and whatever i i was just going back to the old stuff for years and 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 bringing it up now it's amazing how many lyrics and how many melodies i just memorized from you know from 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 holidays in eden and part of that is composition it's just so rock solid. Um, of course, you know, if some of the tracks were written five years earlier for a different band, I mean, that, that kind of locks up that composition. But even the stuff that they had just thrown together for Holidays in Eden is really well flushed out. 
and 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 I'll, I'll, there's a live clip of of splintering heart that 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 is just spectacular and hogarth's voice is just spectacular if if you're doing the youtubes and uh the party uh always always sits well with me um so so paul you say you you, you might want to hear the last three tunes on here oh my god splintering heart and the party alone oh and waiting to happen is yeah. waiting to happen it's it it's such a good song in itself and it's perfect foreshadowing for afraid of sunlight because it's got that slow pulse and it's got kind of that simple back and forth chord progression it's like for me when i hear waiting to happen it's like oh oh that was so close to being afraid of sunlight it just needed to grow up so <laughs> it just that's <laughs> It just needed to, yeah. So, so that's that's when, 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 you know when I knew I had to listen to this for the uh, progressive podcast. Th that that's what kind of feelings came up for me. Yeah, man. Yeah, waiting to happen is is fantastic. <clears throat> well, I was actually trying to um, play a little background music from uh, Holidays in Eden, but I don't know if that would be in order or not. But anyway, um, this, I, I um, have a similar story to Ken's. Uh, actually, um, Paul, uh, you guys were always a couple albums ahead of me. Um, it, it seems like, I mean, I remember, um, you know, you guys specifically talking about Holidays in Eden. And I remember Joe... Having at the time, I mean, back in the day, not having some great things to say about it, but it was it was a controversial. I mean, it was like I remember there was a lot of talk about it, and um, some of the things that were that were spoken of it were not always great. Um, and years later, uh, I want to say five years later, ten years later. I mean, it was a while ago. It was. I'll say, you know, five, six years later, I actually went back and, and listened to it. Uh, and I loved it. You know, it, it seems like if you ever want to get me into an album, talk crap about it, except for Soul Cages. But, uh, you know, talk, <laughs> talk crap about it. Um, and I'll probably discover it on my own. And because, I, you know, I felt that I discovered it on my own, I, I like it more. But um, I, I've always been a sucker for, like, you know, big rock horses. <laughs> and mixed with good musicianship and mixed with the the beautiful lyrics uh you know poetic lyrics that you know hogarth always has but um certainly he he still has on this one um it's a sort of a recipe for you know one of my favorite records and i i don't i i just i'm, I'm a sucker for you know those you know uh I want to call them poppy songs, but uh, I mean, sometimes it hits you, sometimes it doesn't. You know, I was sort of making fun of, uh, you know, the the Fish Phil Collins record like last you know, a couple weeks ago. But uh, I mean, that sort of to me has that poppiness, that sort of poppy Phil Collins thing. It, it, you, either you like it, you don't. Know, it's not good or bad. It's just somehow it'll it'll hit you. It'll hit some of us. You know, in one way, it'll hit the other. It'll hit some, you know other people in another way. And Holidays in Eden hit me um, as a as a very fun record. I, call, I still call it a record. 
Uh, we'll call it a record. We're old be, school, uh, man. It's okay. Yeah, man. We'll call it old. We'll be, we'll be old school. God, that's a, that a great record, man. Um, so I, I loved it. I mean, I, I still, I, I still love it. And um, it, it's, it's sort of the um, reason I, I kind of kept going because I, I have had had some problems. I mean, I know we're skipping up ahead here, but you know, I had had some problems with uh, uh, Merlin.com. I bring it up because uh, you know Ken had brought it up, uh, and that's not one of my favorites. I don't think it's one of your favorites either. But anyway, I mean, there's just some 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 parts that are hard to um, to kind of kind of sit down and and, re- and really take in. Um, and Holidays in Eden is sort of the best of both worlds to me. I mean. I don't. I'm glad that there are other CDs that go beyond that that aren't as poppy. I'm I'm glad they um, progressed. If you you want to use that word again, uh, I'm I'm glad that they um, pr- progressed and they and they moved on from from this album. But I'm really glad that this album happened. And uh, I don't care who you know what came from what album in the past. You know, it's like you know that. I guess I'm going to be all over the place, but I know, you know, Van Halen's record, their their songs came from stuff that they wrote years ago, and their and when I found that out, I tried not to let it bother me because I still really like that 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 CD. You know, even if it was stuff that they rehashed, I, to me, they were still really good songs, and I, w- I was I was happy to have those songs. So, um, you know, I I was. Um, was was sort of happy to have Holidays in Eden as a as a as a um, something different that was you know I certainly would not call it a progressive album but there is a musicianship that is there that is Marillion and there yeah. is a musicianship um, all over the whole thing that um, you can say okay this this is this player this is the keyboard this is the uh, a guitar that that we know and love from years past, and um, uh, there was more than um, uh, there was more than like the, the pop lyrics that 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 you have with a, like maybe like a pop rock song. So yeah. uh, that that to me was um, this is like I'm just listening to the song now, and I'm getting so jazzed. It's so hard to concentrate because I'm like um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, really, I'm really loving the 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 CD. Well, yeah, I, but um, I don't know. I mean, th- th- this is probably going to go down as in my. It's hard to say. It's hard. I mean, it, th- this would go down in my top five uh, Hogarth. Anyway, it would definitely huh. go down in the top half of Hogarth. Um, okay. I, I would say top five. I mean, what? How, how many CDs have, have they put out? Uh, I would definitely say the top half of Hogarth. For they me. put out like um, I think fourteen studio albums with with Hogarth. Okay, so I would still say in the top five. I would still say in my top. Huh. Five. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, who knows? We could talk about it for quite a while. I mean, obviously, the the way it's produced and the and the, the way the songs, th- this album is more accessible, I think, to the masses than than you know many others. Certainly, anything that came before it, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and I, you know, I don't want to have you know, mischaracterize my feelings about it by saying I'm not interested in hearing much about, you know, about this live now. When this album came out, I loved it. I listened to it nonstop. I couldn't stop listening to it. 
And I think it was a mix of, you know, some of these beautiful songs that were accessible and, 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 you know, catchy and short along with songs like, can you mention the party? Um, just phenomenal. It was that, and it was like, it kept that sort of progressive um, roots to it. And, you know, there are progressive songs on, on this, uh, this CD for sure. And the reason that I love that the last three tracks, that suite of, of um, songs is, is because, you know, I have, like, I think of this album, like whose, whose band is this anyway? Right. And the last three songs are, you know, it, it, sort of takes you right into the next step, you know, where there's these three tracks, they're all connected. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the classic Marillion suite, if you will. And, and some of the passages in there, um, you know, when it gets to 100 nights are, it's just, to me, it's just fantastic. And it is like, it sort of opens the door to, you know, what I feel like this band's going to be like, um, and listening in retrospect, obviously, you know, they they move into the into the realm of you know more progressive, a more progressive rock approach, if you will, um, in their future albums. And so, um, so yeah, not I'm not too interested in hearing it now, but but goodness gracious, this this is a fantastic record. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, well, uh, just, 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 uh, just wondering before we leave this album, which ones survived the live shows? Which ones do they still pull up in their sets? Um, <clears throat> I, I can't remember the last time I heard anything from this this album live. Yeah, I, I can't either, actually. Um, I want to say Splintering Heart probably lasted the longest, but. Ultimately, I think, and I find it interesting, I think Splintering Heart presages and was ultimately overtaken by Invisible Man. Mm. You know? Yeah. I, I, think, I think Invisible Man is, is a more sort of advanced, you know, exposition on that theme. And I think that fills that space for Hogarth now that Splintering Heart used to. Because I can remember every time Hogarth would, would do Splintering Heart, he would like go out of his freaking mind. And he does the same thing now with Invisible Man. Yeah, great, great point. I mean, are, nice. are we in nice. agreement that like Splintering Heart is almost not Holidays and Eden-ish? I mean, like, I, I think one of you guys were alluding to that earlier, but I mean... I'm, I'm listening to it right now in the background, and I mean, it's not a pop song at all. I mean, and, and it's very, yeah. very um, rich. It, it's, it, I mean, it's very, very uh, textured and um, uh, dynamic. Here I am. I, I have to, I'm pulling the the volume control over here to actually listen to it while I talk to you. So, uh, um, <laughs> so they uh, certainly have that down. Um, but I mean, this is yeah, I'm splitting her heart. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great song. I, mean, I, I can, it's definitely, I could, I, I could definitely hear that off of some of their, you know, one of their other albums. You know, and I can't say that about a lot of the other songs on on, on Holidays in Eden. And and I think that, you know, ultimately there there's a lot in Holidays Eden. You know, it 
it sounds so slick and so smooth and it just it goes down like pudding and you're like wow this is great that you you almost don't even at first realize that there's some really good stuff on there because your your initial reaction is you know it's like well this is a this is a you know a pop album but in a lot of ways you know it's not and and even if it is i'm I'm a big proponent of, of bands and artists being able to go out and do something different because ultimately, if, if and I'm not saying they did, if Marillion sat down and said, we want to make a pop album, what you have is extraordinarily talented musicians who, you know, anyone can make a pop song but really talented people who decide to do it can do it really well, you know? Yeah. I, I'd like to, to take a quick moment here and, and quote the Paul Zotter of 16 years ago as it <laughs> pertains to this, because I think this is, this is spectacular. It, we, we should have read this at the beginning, and maybe I'll put it in the beginning. If season's end... Was is, 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 is it going to be in Paul Zotter form? Is it going to be like 20 minutes long? Or <laughs> If Season's End was the treasure chest of all that could be Hogmar, then indeed Holidays in Eden was the key that unlocked its magical beauty. In all the discussions we are likely to have from this point forward, perhaps the most common phrase we will see is, quote, too long, end quote, that does not apply to H.E. Mm. As I listened and pondered, I realized how much I love this album and also how, with favorite bands and CDs, each has a fantastic story of where I was in life when I heard it, or more importantly, when I, quote, got it. So there you go. We've actually got the whole thing yeah. here. Um, here's 16-year-old here's ago Joe's thought on, uh, on this. This is pretty funny. Um, I'm, I'm about to explain why Holidays in Eden is the way it is. So you can just imagine how intelligent I thought I was at the time. <laughs> Here was a band that had been on the verge of international superstardom when the wheels came off the wagon. They had tasted success with Kaylee, and I think that they wanted to taste it again. In comes Hogarth, a much better looking singer than Fish. He's dark and mysterious, and he sings like a mother. All the chicks dig him. This is the ticket. If you watch the videos from Season's End and Holidays in Eden, they're all Hogarth. It's like watching a No Doubt video. Um, as an aside here, the most stupid incarnation of this Hogarth sex sells thing is the scenes in dry land where H is sitting on a chair singing and he's all soaked with his hair dripping water and his white shirt plastered to his body. Very silly. That oh, being... don't remind me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that being said, I feel that most of the pop feel on Holidays in Eden comes ultimately from the production and not from the songs themselves. The combination, however, yields a product that is a, is like a gourmet dessert. It's still high quality, but it goes down so smooth. I like it very much now. So there you oh, go. Oh, wow. Yeah. They, 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 they are lucky that their Prague fans, uh, you know, stuck with them just to hear the uh, Kaylee covers and the Lavender covers and the Sugar Mice covers. Um it, it, the, the, those videos and that marketing and that that personification of 
of Hogarth could have been the Billy Squire moment for Marillion. You know, you know, they stumbled into uh, dangerous territory, but they made it out. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great analogy. <clears throat> so before we move on to, uh, to brave and, and, you know, we're already at an hour, I may have to uh, split this into two episodes. Yeah, actually I was going to, I mean, this more for selfish reasons because I couldn't get here at 7.30. Um, I was actually going to suggest that, but that would be completely selfish on my part, being that I... Uh, oh, I meant... <laughs> I, I meant uh, because I, mean, I still want to talk about the first one. <laughs> so, but but here's the problem. I don't know if you guys remember this at all. We, apparently, and I don't have all, every, all the emails, but when we started this, we did Season's End, and then Tom replied with his his Star Wars email. Do you guys remember this at all? Don't have to remind me. I do. <laughs> I'll get into that, but there was <laughs> the response to this, and before we go too far away from season's end, Tom wrote this email, which is spectacular, and maybe we'll read a little bit of it here in just a second. But Dan then replied, Wow, great email. I think Tom put more effort into this email than Marillion put into Season's End. So apparently Dan was <laughs> <laughs> apparently Dan wasn't on board um, back at, at at the time. I think and, he saw. I think Dan sold Dan sold Season's End for Taco Bell, didn't he? That's he did. Exactly Taco right. Bell. That's exactly Blasphemy. where it goes. Blasphemy. So so before we get into Brave, let's quickly dive into. Um, well, and there's one more thing I've got to say about about holidays, but. Here's here's what Tom had wrote about us back in the day. Why am I not so surprised? real quick, Joe? So real quick, was this in res what was this in response of the so, the Star Wars? Was this this was this based I, was on, this in response of of Dan? Because I no, wanna... no, Dan. That's what Dan replied to you after you wrote this. Your email was, I think, in response to the initial email conversation around Season's End. I don't. Okay. I don't have the emails preceding this, but based on where it comes in and some of the references, I, I that that's where I think it uh, it came in. And Tom wrote, "Why am I not surprised that friends with similar music musical tastes and backgrounds can be at such odds over a truly compelling entity?" I use the word entity because at the height of a divine Marillion moment, one has an experience I might compare to the Force. As the force conditions the mind in a spiritual manner, propelling the body beyond its own limitations, so does Marillion. If one would compare Marillion to such a state, then one would also have to compare someone who would sell the force for a measly five bucks to a second-hand CD store as the evil emperor. Surely no one could think of such a horrible fate for season's end than cast out into the cold and infinite bargain bin space. Forget about the emperor being an ambitious senator in his heyday. He was really a New York City lawyer. As the emperor was not alone in his insidious ways, neither is Dan. Colby and Jay follow close behind in the form of stormtroopers. After previous unsuccessful ploys against the Queensrykeism movement, these soldiers were excommunicated and since taken in by the emperor and turned to the dark side. How fitting... Wow. <laughs> how fitting that the... Uh, that the Ewoks use the heads of stormtroopers as percussive instruments after finally defeating the Empire. Uh. How can you have evil without its counterpart? 
The Jedi Knights are indeed the wisest and most courageous of the galaxy. Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker are the true leaders of the movement. With their Hogarth wisdom and post-fish support groups, they have made the Marillion movement what it is today. It should be no surprise that they come in the form of Joe and Paul. If it were not for these true guardians of peace, the Force would surely be in disarray. <laughs> Obi-Wan and Luke also have a faithful but unpredictable friend. Han Solo cruises around in space in his Millennium Falcon. Although he doesn't completely own it, he downloads portions of it one piece at a time from Napster.com until he can pay off Jabba the Hutt and purchase it legitimately. Similarly to Han Solo blasting Guido with his laser gun in the space bar, Ken has been known to throw temper tantrums in restaurants, knocking over glasses, and freaking out his friends while debating tobacco issues. I'd be willing to bet that Han Solo was smuggling tobacco in the cargo hold. Luke and Obi-Wan wait eagerly for Han to come to the rescue, finish off the season-end chapter, and continue on with his companions through the chasms of concept albums and long-winded songs. Another friend of questionable intentions lurks in the shadows of progressive rock euphoria. Lando Calrissian, a shifty rogue, threatens to upset the balance of the Force. Vic Vital so far has shown promising taste by not selecting Colt 45 as his preferred logger, giving the Rebels a heightened enthusiasm on the journey that awaits them. Anakin Skywalker is a spirited adventurer whose soul is torn between the sheer bliss of inspirational vision and the torrent of extra CDs loaded with mediocre B-sides and outtakes that nobody in their right mind would possibly want to hear. It is Tom who must choose between good and evil. It is Tom who must come to terms with the band with two singers of amazing, amazing depth and insight. It is Tom who must get out of the house more often. It is Tom who must peel himself away from his monitor or else he will lose his eyesight for sure. It is Tom who must finish this email for the only thing worse than a long email is listening to the second half of Marillion.com. <laughs> oh, God. What year is this? Oh, my goodness. 2001. I, oh, my God. 2001. Oh, my God. How beautiful oh. is that? Wow. Uh, I, 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 would, I did not remember that that way. <laughs> All right. So um. <laughs> that was that is that is why I kept that stack of papers all these years because you can't you can't recreate that. Now, one thing that I did want to make the point before we move on, um, and, and I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but it's it's Hogarth's interpretation of the emotion of music and and how he conveys that. Um, Marillion's music has always been very emotional, and, and as we said, Fish had his own spin on it. One of the things that I like about Hogarth is that he will switch between third and first person. You know, he, he has no problem conveying, you know, you know, whatever sort of emotional state he's trying to convey, you know, from afar and saying there's something going on over there. But when he steps into that first person, as he does in 100 Nights, he has the ability to convey that so well. And that's personally what I always respond to. And as I was listening to this, you know, as I got to the end of the album, you know, and, and that, that suite, 
a lot of that suite is is more in third person, but when he steps into that first person at the end of it, it just kicks me right in the face, and I just think it's spectacular. So that was uh, that was the point I wanted yeah. to make about that. Yeah, rock on. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed our ongoing discussions about Marillion. In the next episode, we will discuss Marillion's Brave. As always, we encourage you to reach out and send us your thoughts or your comments. We can be reached at progpala, P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and Google Play, and we encourage all of you to um, leave a, a rating and a feedback. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next episode.